Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with FEO Now. We are a program of retired intelligence officers and historian authors who write about them, who have great stories to tell. Today, we have a fascinating story by a historian who actually experienced uh, as a young man some of those events. And let me welcome to today's program, Steve Fogel. Steve, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks very much for having me, Jim. Yeah, um, it's it's really an honor to to speak to uh, Afio. Uh, I was hoping we could do it uh, in person, but uh, circumstances aren't allowing that uh, at least at this time. So, uh, just uh, to elaborate a little bit on on what uh, Jim was saying, that I uh, have some connections to this story um, about the Berlin Tunnel, and that my dad was a case officer uh, with the agency who was stationed uh, in Berlin. Uh, starting in the late 50s. And in fact, I was born there um, shortly before the Berlin Wall went up. And um, my dad always used to tell me there was no coincidence. They'd uh, put that up to keep me out. But, um, I didn't really take that personally in any event. Um, uh, I was always fascinated with, uh, with Germany and Berlin in general. We left in 1962, and, uh, but I uh, went back as a reporter in the, the late 80s. In fact, uh, got there in the fall of 1989, just in time for the, uh, the Berlin Wall to come down. So I was there when it came down as well. And as a reporter for several different papers, the Army Times and uh, later for the Washington Post, I, I covered a lot of the uh, end of the Cold War drama um, and also some of the uh, fascinating espionage cases that began to emerge uh, as, as the Cold War uh, started to recede. So um, I never was able to, to talk to my dad about that. Some of you may, might have known him, Don Vogel, um, who uh, served in another a, a number of assignments, including uh, Mexico and uh, Buenos Aires and Islamabad. Uh, but uh, and he, he passed away in 1986. Um, the story that uh, I thought I would uh, focus on as I was trying to write something about uh, um, the life my, my father had had was uh, the Berlin Tunnel, and uh, I'll I'll show some slides if I if I may of uh, graphics that we can look at. This is the uh, the book that uh, I wrote, Betrayal uh, in Berlin. That's not me on the cover, by the way. I think they got that silhouette from uh, Mad Magazine or something. But uh, um, the uh, the context of the times I think is very important to understand. Um, this is um, more or less the, uh, the early, mid-1950s, and it was a time that I think that the U.S. was uniquely vulnerable. Um, we moved past uh, the, you know, the, the end of World War II. The Cold War was now uh, pretty much in full swing, and the Soviets had surprised us by, um, through espionage, uh, um, by having a, 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 their first atomic bomb in 1949. And uh, this was a great shock to the U.S. government, among others. And we were also faced with a much larger force in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Soviet Red Army was still positioned 300 to 400,000 troops in East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, much larger than uh, corresponding Western forces. So uh, the Soviets maintained an overwhelming conventional advantage. And at the same time, we had none of the, uh, uh, the overhead imagery that, 
uh, we associate with later in the Cold War. The U-2 was not flying yet, for example. Uh, there were no satellites, obviously, uh, providing that uh, imagery either. And we've had very little success placing agents behind the Iron Curtain. It, uh, virtually every operation had been rolled up. And on top of that, we had lost a, a really great source of information uh, known as Venona that uh, was run by the Army Security Agency. And that had uh, given us a good window into Soviet um, communications through intercepts of, of radio. And the Soviets had learned about that, again, from spies, in this case, Kim Philby and uh, William Weisband in the Army Security Agency, and changed their methods of communication, moving primarily to landlines, um, and also uh, changing a lot of their uh, uh, their codes. So it became, uh, we were, this was known as Black Friday, and um, we went to virtually zero information about the Soviets in a short time. And uh, the Korean War was one of the things that took us by surprise. We had no advance warning of that, uh, despite the fact that this was a, a war that was approved in, uh, by Stalin in the Kremlin. And we, uh, we'd also badly misjudged the capabilities of the, the Chinese communists. And Eisenhower, who had succeeded Truman, had a great fear that the U.S. was vulnerable to a uh, nuclear Pearl Harbor. Uh, because we were more or less flying blind. And, uh, Churchill also was eager for, for better intelligence. In, in that uh, context, uh, Berlin became really sort of the, the focal point of this battle for better intelligence. And I, I know that uh, many of you are, are already quite familiar with this, but just to review quickly, of course, uh, Berlin is, is way behind the Western lines, it's deep in this, uh, the Eastern sector. Berlin is more or less an island uh, in the middle of East Germany. Uh, and it's a divided city into the Soviet uh, sector on the East and then the American, British and French. But there's open movement across the borders. This is of course before the Berlin Wall is built. So you have tens of thousands of people crossing the sector borders, you know, for jobs, for shopping, they're taking the, the U-Bahn or the S-Bahn or or walking or driving. So it, it was a, a remarkable atmosphere and a, a place where the, the West actually had its its best view of behind the Iron Curtain. And so it was, it was quite possible to have meetings with agents and safe houses and other places. And so this Berlin was kind of the, um, I, I'd say the uh, the real espionage capital of the world in the, in the 1950s. It was also very importantly, a communication hubs for the Soviets. Uh, this followed the old uh, imperial Kaiser type uh, communication system that had that ran through Europe. Berlin being sort of the center of the hub, where all communication lines came into Berlin and then radiated out from there. So connections to Moscow or to Budapest, as well as to the West. You had, by virtue of all the important things happening there, you had a, a very large number of intelligence agencies working there from the East and the West, you know, by some estimates, uh, some 80 different, uh, you know, the Czechs, the Poles all had theirs and the the Americans, you know, they had uh, the, the military services and, and others operating their own intelligence operations. So there was by some estimates, some 10,000 operatives working in uh, Berlin at that time. And, you know, there are also a, a ton of uh, charlatans, you know, running paper mills of fake intelligence. There was, uh, you know, a lot of goons. There was a, a real Wild West atmosphere, you know, just uh, the Soviets would sometimes kidnap people who would try to defect to the West or, or people that were causing them trouble. Um, this time, um, Bill Harvey, 
enters the picture. He was, uh, you know, fascinating, very unlike uh, many of the, the, the top CIA officers of the day in that he was a former G-man from, from Indiana. And he hadn't, you know, he wasn't part of the Eastern establishment that seemed to dominate the CIA in those days. He had um, been quite successful during World War II as a, a Nazi hunter, helping to break up some of the Avengers, uh spy rings in the United States, and uh, also being involved in, in the very first focusing on Soviet intelligence as a threat as, as World War II winds down. He's part of a team that is trying to um, get a handle on Soviet intelligence operations in the United States. And he has this fantastic counterintelligence mind, mind that could put seemingly disparate pieces of information together and he could make connections and was uh you know also an astonishingly um uh prodigious drinker among other things and he he's carried guns with him everywhere and uh he was a character for sure and he is being sent to berlin in 1952 he had worked with frank rollette who was uh, the legends of code breaking in the united states he uh he'd helped uh devise the uh, the code breaking of the, the japanese dip diplomatic uh um, communications during World War II, and he had had a falling out with the the new newly created NSA, and had come to the CIA. And both Harvey and Rallet were were uh, frustrated with the the lack of good intelligence that they were getting uh, about the Soviets, and they agreed that they should figure out some way to target Soviet landlines. You know, this idea didn't come entirely out of the blue. The um, Brits had been doing a very successful operation in, in, in uh, Vienna. Peter Lund, who was a SIS officer, had successfully uh, dug some small tunnels in Vienna that had successfully tapped into uh, Red Army communications that were running through that divided city. Now, these communication lines were pretty easy to reach because they, they, they went through the western-held territory in, in Vienna. Uh, so it was a you know, small matter to dig a six-foot tunnel and, and reach some of these communication lines. But Brits had thought, and the Americans agreed, that uh, Berlin could provide a, a much larger trove because of the nature of the communications that were there. And uh, the Soviet uh, group of forces in Germany was headquartered near near Berlin. And so there was a, a lot of good information that they thought might be available. And the other thing is that... Um, the Brits and Americans agreed to uh, work together. For one thing, you know, the Brits knew that a Berlin operation would be a lot more expensive than what they'd done in Vienna. The, the, uh, the British were still uh, in economically poor shape. They didn't have a lot of money to uh, throw into to, uh, espionage operations. Uh, by teaming up with the Americans, they could get the Americans to, to pay for everything, uh, while the, the Brits would have the technical expertise and experience from, from Vienna. They had the guys who could pull this off. The two uh, sides agree to work together. Uh, one disadvantage is that it brings George Blake into the, the picture. Uh, of course, uh, George Blake uh, uh, just died a couple of weeks ago, as I'm speaking, and uh, he's he's a key figure in this story, and uh, I, I interviewed him about uh, uh, what happened here on the Berlin Tunnel. Um, I'm not going to focus too much on, on Blake in this story, uh, just because, uh, you know, talking about Blake himself is, is, I think, an entire lecture in itself. So maybe at another time we could do that. In any event, uh, George Blake had been working for the British Secret Intelligence Service in Korea, and he had been taken prisoner. And he was held uh, after the North Koreans uh, invaded. He was, you know, put on a death march and held captivity for three years. And sometime during that period, he flips. He decides he's going to spy for the uh, 
the KGB. And he returns in 1953, a photo on the right, to a hero's welcome. And he is um, given very little vetting upon his return and is assigned to Section Y SIS. And that is the very section that is going to be overseeing the British part of the tunnel operation. In the meantime, um, both sides, uh, the U.S. and the Brits, move forward with trying to, to uh, you know, get more information about how to pull off this operation. These were a couple of the key figures in it. Uh, Alan Conway on the left was uh, a communications officer for the agency. He um, begins devising operations that uh, the CIA can use to, to try to figure out where they can reach uh, Soviet communication lines in Berlin. And Bill Harvey, we choose as one of his, uh, really his key deputy on the uh, Berlin Tunnel, Hugh Montgomery, who's on the right uh, with his wife, Anne-Marie. Uh, Hugh, I'm sure many of you uh, knew him. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, the start of what would become a very remarkable 50-year-plus career at the agency. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, Q was a, a great help to me in putting this this book together. I interviewed him a number of times. Um, he, he was basically Harvey's right-hand man on this operation. And what uh, Q did was um, they were targeting the, the East German Ministry of Communications and uh, to try to find information about where the cables that, uh, that controlled, uh, that, that Soviet communications were using where they ran through uh, East Berlin, which were the ones that were used by the high command, you know, which ones carried the real traffic that would be of interest. And they recruited, uh, you know, workers like the this old lady that uh, Hugh called the uh, little old lady in, in sneakers. And she was, she kept all the records in these um, little index cards that she uh, recorded, you know, who's using what cables. And she would bring this information to Hugh at a safe house, and they would uh, get all that. And based on this information, before too long, they were uh, deciding that they could target three Soviet trunk cables that ran through Berlin. And there was a section down in the far southern part of uh, Berlin, uh, down around here, near the uh, east, east Berlin village of Alplinica, near the uh, American, it wasn't really a town, but a section known as Rudo, which uh, where the the cables that the, the Soviets were using ran within about a quarter mile of the sector border. That was one of the closest points that they came to uh, the American sector border. So if they could uh, they could reach the, the cables here, um, they could you know tap into lines that were connecting the, the Soviet headquarters uh, in Windsor uh, back to to Moscow, and and of course also points across East Germany and. In Eastern Europe. This is the, uh, the place where they decide to, to launch the operation. Uh, of course, they have to figure out what they're going to do with all the, the, the dirt that they're, they're going to be um, removing to dig this tunnel. A quarter mile is a lot of dirt. And the idea they came up with was to build a, an army warehouse right near the sector border. You can see that this was this was mostly farm fields at that time with some scattered homes. So uh, it was remoteness was also an attraction to the site. So the, uh, the army leased some land from a German farmer and, and built this odd-looking warehouse. And the idea was they would, you know, dig the tunnel and just store the fill inside the warehouse. They also decided as they moved along, they were kind of making stuff up as they went. They also decided that they would put uh, these radar dishes, strange-looking antenna and so forth, on the roof because they needed to have an uh, excuse to have a building like that there. And it, it would make sense to have a radar station there because the Soviets used the East German airfield at Schönefeld right outside of uh, Berlin as their main base. 
So there was a lot of military aircraft flying in that area. So that was the plan. This uh, dotted line shows the path that the tunnel would have to take to reach the, uh, the three trunk cables running uh, beneath an East German highway, which uh, Now, making a tunnel of this sort was going to be uh, beyond the capabilities of uh, the CIA. So they had to bring in a special Corps of Engineer team to do this. And these were uh, uh, two officers, uh, uh, Captain uh, Williamson on the on the left and, and Captain Keith Comstock on the right, basically overseeing a lot of the uh, the digging operation. Uh, and I, I interviewed them about the operation. These were some of the men who, who did the digging. Um, they they were basically brought together in uh, in 1954 and told that they were going to have to to dig a tunnel in secret. They wouldn't be they wouldn't know where it was, but it had to be done quietly. Um, so they went out to train in New Mexico for a few months and uh, used the type of equipment they'd have to be using to dig a, a tunnel quietly in secret, which basically meant with shovels and lining the tunnel with steel liner and pushing it forward hydraulic hydraulics as they as they as they dug. So uh, they then had to um, carry all this equipment, ship it across the ocean to Bremerhaven, and then sneak it into Berlin on the duty trains, night duty trains that uh, ran uh, every night from uh, the western uh, from West Germany into Berlin. Keith Comstock told me that he was pretty sure he, he accompanied uh, the train on, on one of these runs with uh, you know 200 tons of of uh, equipment for a tunnel. He was pretty sure he was going to end up in a gulag, but they managed to uh, to get there safely. And then the digging begins. And this, uh, they launched the, the actual tunnel digging in the um, September of 1954. And because of the, it's about a six foot diameter tunnel, because of the, the size, they could, you know, they could put about three or four guys in the front using little entrenching tools, little army shovels to, uh, to dig. And then they're filling uh, sandbags with the fill, they, they build this miniature uh, wooden railroad with an electric uh, forklift to pull uh, carts of sandbags back to the warehouse where they're unloaded, or they're also used them to, to line the side of the tunnel as they move forward. And then you can see the steel liner that they're they're putting in place as they move forward. It's very loose soil, uh, so they had to guard against uh, cave-ins. And uh, they were hoping to dig it fairly deep uh, like about 24 feet below the surface, but uh, early on they ran into um, water, which uh, was a big problem. They were gonna have, they weren't expecting it, but there was a perched water table there, so they had to dig pretty close to the surface, and they were quite concerned that the noise might be heard, or that there would be settling at the surface that would give away the tunnel. So this complicated the operation. Uh, they also ran into a septic field that was that was a major problem as well, but uh, they. They, they uh, used some pumps to, to get that out and uh, move forward slowly, about 11 feet a day. Now, of course, all this activity drew a lot of interest on the eastern side. Um, and the East German Vopos would, would train their glasses on the, uh, the American warehouse and you know try to figure out what was going on. And they focused a lot of their attention. They were always looking up at the antennae, but they weren't um, looking down at the ground be below them. So. Uh, you know, they had uh, an observation post inside the warehouse, the GIs, uh, whenever anybody came close to the site where the tunnel was, was being dug, they would flash on a red light in the tunnel and all work would, would come to a halt. And then you also had um, a farmer, Farmer Noak, whose uh, land was being dug underneath. He was planting an orchard 
and uh, potato fields. And they would have to stop whenever he was close. And I, I interviewed his daughter, and you know, she recalled that he was uh, sometimes he would hear some humming noise. He couldn't quite figure out what it was, um, but it was probably the pumps that were, you know, sucking the water and sewage and stuff out of the tunnel. He just thought it was probably something at the warehouse, but he didn't know what. And also, an odd thing was that. The trees that he was planting in certain places weren't growing very well. So uh, some strange things, but the, the tunnel advances in um, six months, February 1955, they complete the tunnel, uh, the Corps of Engineers does. And uh, they've had to guess, well, not guess, but they've obviously they can't use, uh, you know, uh, any standard uh, tools for um, plotting a tunnel. They can't do any core samples from above. They're, they're having to... Um, more or less use trigonometry to figure out how far to dig the tunnel so that it would be right below the cables they targeted. And they, they managed to do that right on target, you know, by, um, they tried a couple things that they, they needed to gauge the distance to the site and they would hit some baseballs over the, uh, over the border sector, you know, hoping that they could use that to measure how far they needed to go. But the East German guards were always throwing the balls back. So eventually they came up with this idea of having a, uh, East German van that was uh, driven by an agent to break down on the road right above where they wanted to, to dig, and they were able to use the uh, surveyor's tools at that point to to figure out the proper distance. They uh, an equipment uh, room was put right directly below the the, the road in uh, where the the, uh, the cables were with amplifiers. It had to be completely dust free. So that was uh, you know it looked like a command center in a battleship uh, right below this. Uh, you know, this very muddy tunnel digging site. They put that together. And then the Corps of Engineers was was taken out and uh, the British team came in. Royal Engineers, uh, along with uh, a team of uh, phone specialists from the British Post Office, who were just the best in the world at doing tapping operations, came in. And they had to um, basically dig up to the point where the the trunk lines would be reached. There, the trunk lines were only 27 inches below the highway. So there was a great concern. Peter Montagnon, who was one of the SIS officers I interviewed, who was down there in the tunnel as the uh, the tap was being made, was, you know, described it as, as being just absolutely terrifying because they were uh, below this road that was used uh, for a lot of heavy traffic tanks. And, he, you know, Peter was, was quite concerned a tank was just going to crash through uh, into their tunnel at some point, but um, they uh, they nonetheless managed to painstakingly tap the three uh, trunk lines, and uh, by in, in May of uh, 1955, the first tap was made. So this uh, schematic from the book kind of shows how it's working. You have um, the uh, over here is the uh, the targeted cables, and. Uh, here is the equipment amplification chamber that, with all that fancy equipment. And here are the cables. They had to, um, uh, once they intercepted the signal from these uh, cables, uh, it had to be such a, a low signal, low amount of voltage that they take off the lines to keep them from being detected, that it immediately had to be amplified in the, uh, the chamber here. And then um, that amplified signal would, would be run back along the entire quarter mile length of the tunnel. Um, into the warehouse, and the uh, on the second floor of the uh, of the warehouse, actually the first floor, if you, uh, above the basement, they had an operations room with, with all the recorders and a team waiting uh, with headphones to to listen to see what they they 
they captured. We also had the separate uh, radar installation operating on the, on the second floor loft. And most of the, uh, the people working the, the electronic intelligence, these were signal soldiers, didn't know anything about the tunnel. They were kept completely compartmentalized. So they didn't know that there was a tunnel beneath this building. They knew there was something funny going on, but they weren't sure what. That's the setup. And uh, this is back in the warehouse where the uh, Ampex recorders are, are set up. They had about 150 of them. And I talked to one of the, uh, the guys who was in the warehouse that night, the night they made the first tap, and he's there listening. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, Bill Romy, he was a CIA translator who spoke uh, flawless German and, and, and Russian. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of anxiety. And then finally, you know, they could hear on their, their headphones uh, the voice. It was a, the voice of a, a Soviet army colonel, you know, who was talking to one of his subordinates. And, you know, everybody was, uh, they knew that they, they, Hit it then, and pretty soon they were like, like a bunch of uh, wildcatters in uh, in Oklahoma or something that are practically drowning in oil because as soon as they hit the the taps and the second cable was was tapped as well, they were just flooded with recorded with conversations coming in. Uh, you know, thirteen hundred conversations a day because they have so many lines being tapped. These three cables, you know, each carrying a hundred plus circuits. So each of these circuits. Uh, you know, carrying multiple conversations, both voice and teletype. Some of the, you know, some of the lines were, were teletype. So you had this phenomenal amount of communication coming in and you had a, a, a processing team, forward processing team in the warehouse looking for any actionable intelligence, anything that needed, they needed to know right away. One thing, any, any sign that, um, that the uh, Soviets uh, were suspicious about a tap, uh, that was a big priority, but also they're they're looking for any signs of of a Soviet mobilization for an attack. I mean, that was the uh, the big impetus for for building this tunnel in the first place. So you had um, the six man team of Brits and Americans, um, and one of the guys who was brought in was uh, this gentleman on the left. He uh, uh, Eugene Craig. He was uh, an army translator who'd been studying in Monterey at the language school. He was in the Russian uh, army. Uh, Russian language army uh, choir at uh, Monterey, and he got orders to mysteriously report to Berlin immediately. And so he finds himself, you know, with headphones stuck on his head, and he's having to listen to uh, the, uh, all this uh, uh, Russians uh, speaking very uh, jargony type Russian, plus a lot of profanity that he hadn't learned in school. So he had to brush up on his profanity pretty quickly. Um, so the, the tapes that are being recorded in the warehouse, um, they're being shipped back to, to London and to Washington. The, the voice tapes are going to the nice uh, Chester Terrace facility on the, on the right in, in, in central London, where hundreds of uh, SIS employees, translators, transcribers, analysts are, are going through the material, um, you know, 24 hours a day. The uh, teletype information they're not uh, given quite as nice uh, digs. They're sent down to one of the old temporary buildings uh, that used to line the mall. It's known as T32, pretty close to the Lincoln Memorial, this decrepit old factory-type building that uh, was left over from World War I. Uh, and pretty soon the, the floors in this building were sagging because the weight of, of these tapes that they were going through was just phenomenal. They're, there's just a, a phenomenal amount of information that's flooding into Washington and London, and it all has to be processed. That's 
that's quite an operation in itself. So some of the information that they're they're getting is uh, includes the phone lines being used by Marshal um, Gretschko, who was the, the commander of the group of Soviet forces in Germany. He doesn't know his lines are, are tapped, and uh, they're getting a lot of good information from, from him. In some ways, the more valuable information comes from the clerks, the clerks at the logistical centers uh, or at the, the different uh, battalion headquarters uh, spread around East Germany. They, you know, that's where they kind of find out what's going on with the Soviet army logistically. What, you know, if there are any movements, uh, troop movements or equipment movements that are going on. The uh, the lines of the uh, KGB chief in um, Moscow, you know, I'm sorry, in Berlin, Evgeny Petrovanov uh, was also being uh, tapped. And initially, he's not aware of the of the tap, and I'm not going to go into uh, all the uh, discussion now of, of the intelligence that was gathered. But maybe we can talk about that during the question period. But in April of 1956, 11 months after the tunnel began uh, operating, there was some heavy rains, and the Soviets uh, staged a discovery of the uh, of the lines because there were uh, a lot of short circuits in the communication lines all across Berlin, and uh, it was. They made a huge splash of discovering the tunnel and um, brought in press from, from around the world for this quite a big propaganda show about uh, what the American imperialists were up to in, in Berlin. And uh, it was quite a, a sensation, probably the, the biggest uh, spy story of the day until um, until the, sh uh, the shoot down of the, uh, the U-2 over the Soviet Union a few years later. You know, I mentioned, of course, that, that George Blake had... Uh, had known about this from the start. You know, it's quite a story of what the, the Soviets decided to do. And uh, without going into all the, the details now, the, um, the KGB found itself in a big problem when they were alerted by Blake about the plans for this tunnel before it was even dug. Because if they did anything to, to uh, stop this tunnel, Blake was one of only about a handful of uh, British or American intelligence officers who knew about this operation, and he his cover would have been blown in a heartbeat if they'd stopped it. And what happens is a very small circle of KGB uh, leaders, including Ivan Serov, who was then the, the head of the KGB, decided not to not to do anything, not to inform the Red Army about it, and initially not even to tell the KGB headquarters in Berlin uh, at Karlshorst about it because of the value that they they put on. On Blake, and so that's a quick rundown on what the, the book's about. I interviewed him in in uh, 1995. Uh, he had some interesting uh, reflections on the tunnel. This is a piece of the tunnel here on the right uh, that was, you know, pulled out when they were building an autobahn after the uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. A lot of people that uh, I interviewed, unfortunately, are are gone now. Hugh Montgomery and Dave Murphy, who was uh, Harvey's number two in Berlin for a while. Also, he was the, the boss of my dad. My dad's on the in the middle there. Uh, those were his uh, two best friends, uh, Ben Pepper and Gus Hathaway, who I think some of you uh, might know them as well. They were all in Berlin together, and they, they formed a lifelong friendship. Um, and I didn't start this project till they were all gone. Unfortunately, I never had a chance to, to talk to them, but... Um, Definitely, uh, they were uh, front and center in my mind as I worked on the book. So, in any event, uh, Jim, thank you for uh, letting me show these um, these slides and ready to uh, take your questions. Steve, that is a fascinating story. 
and it brings back uh, a lot of memories. Uh, as Steve knows, um, I served in uh, U.S. Army intelligence in Berlin in the late 60s um, during the latter portion of the Cold War. But boy, your descriptions just uh, take me right back to Berlin. Despite the fact that uh, senior officers in the KGB um, through Blake were aware of the tunnel even before it was built, can you give us some detail about the quality of intelligence that was um, uh, produced during the period that the tunnel was operative? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, they weren't uh, they weren't so much looking for like the the big aha secret as they were trying to fill out um, all the blank spaces that they had about the the capabilities uh, and the weapons. Basically, the order of battle of the uh, Red Army forces that were based in, in Germany. So a lot of what they begin picking up are the locations of units they knew nothing about, new weapon systems that are being deployed, you know, a, a new battle tank that is is, um, is soon to be brought out, uh, you know, new uh, locations of nuclear armed uh, or bombers that, that could carry nuclear weapons that were being based in Poland and East Germany. Because they're also intercepting KGB communications, not KGB uh, communications directly back to Moscow, because those were those were on protected overhead lines. But all the the KGB stations around uh, East Germany, and also very critically the GRU, Soviet military intelligence, all these communications are being intercepted. So they learn a, a lot about some operations that are underway, and also about the GRU and KGB trade craft. One of the important things that they they picked up information about was the uranium, uh, East German uranium mine at Bismuth, which was the key source of uranium for the Soviet nuclear program. And the KGB had an office down there, and they were uh, able to intercept the, their calls back to to uh, Berlin. And from that, they, they got a much better sense of the capabilities of the, you know, the grade of uranium that they were getting there. Uh, that causes them to to sort of reassess their their um, assessments of of what Soviet uh, capabilities might uh, be in terms of you know how many megaton uh, weapons they could they could make. The key thing, uh, another key thing they they picked up was Khrushchev's secret speech takes place during the the time of the tunnel. This is when. In uh, 1956, February of 56, at the 20th Party Congress, when Khrushchev denounces Stalin, you know, some of the communication that they were picking up was from Marshal Gretschko, who attended the, the speech, uh, or more particularly his wife, who uh, was their favorite target of the uh, the listeners, uh, because she was kind of a gossip, and she was calling back to her daughter in Berlin with information about, you know, oh, you wouldn't believe what what um, what happened today, and, and uh, you know, father is is really in a tizzy, that that sort of thing. And from some of these clues that were coming in, the, the CIA was able to put together not just the, that conversation, the, this mosaic of conversations. Uh, the CIA was able to put together a, a bit of a understanding of what was going on in the Kremlin, who the different players were, you know, what what was happening with Khrushchev. And this was, you know, pretty critical information at a, a transformational time in the, in the Cold War. You know, the biggest thing that they were looking for was what they never found. It was kind of like the, the dog that didn't bark. Was They never found any indication that the Soviets were planning a, a first strike. That was the big fear, that, you know, there would be some sort of sudden attack across the borders into West Germany, and that, you know, they would be caught unawares. So 
for almost a year there, they had assurances that the Soviets weren't up to anything like that. And that was, you know, pretty critical information for Eisenhower to have. And ironically, not even not ironically, but, you know, very importantly, less than a a month after the the tunnel was discovered, the um, U-2 began flying. So you immediately had the U-2 kind of take over some of that early warning mission that the, the tunnel had been providing. Now, it's a different type of information because it's obviously you're not getting in, intent uh, that you can get from uh, phone calls, but it was still extremely uh, valuable. They also had um, the Russian GRU officer, Pyotr Popov, who uh, was providing information to the CIA at this time. And they were able to triangulate a lot of the information that Popov had was getting with the uh, the tunnel intelligence. And on top of that, then, uh, once they had the U-2 flying, they were able to keep pretty good tabs on, on what the Soviets were, were up to. Well, Steve, this has been um, quite an experience. I really want to thank you um, for bringing this story uh, to our listeners, uh, the story of your father, um, of the men and women of Berlin Station, CIA, NSA, British SIS. Um, it really is a great story of uh, early espionage during the Cold War. Um, thanks very much for coming on today. We definitely want to get you back to tell the George Blake story because I realize that that's a uh, Interesting story in itself. So we hope to see you again um, real soon. Yeah, that would be a great honor. I'd love to do it, Jim. Hope uh, hope we all stay well in the meantime. Thanks again. Thank you.